Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Our passage today, John chapter 18. We're looking at verses 33 to 40. Um, If uh, you don't have a Bible with you and you want to look at a Bible as we go through the message today, there are white paperback Bibles under the chairs uh, in front of you. And the passage today is on page 528. That's where you'll find John 18, 33 to 40. Uh, Some of you might know that um, dictionaries have this practice of adding new words to their dictionaries year after year. And um, there's quite a few words actually that get added. And um, I I went to Merriam-Webster's website and found some of the words that have been added in 2016. And uh, found some of these words. Binge watch is now a a new word in in our dictionaries. (laughs) Binge watch is to watch many or all episodes of a TV series in rapid succession. Uh, Mary and I did that with the show Lost several years ago. We, we binge-watched, and now that's an official word. Um, <clears throat> Airball was added just this past year, which is kind of surprising. I would have thought that word would have been added a long time ago, um, as that's been a commonly used term on the basketball court. It means to completely miss the basket rim and backboard <laughs> with a shot, to miss everything. Um, Sometimes you'll see a guy shoot a free throw and shoot an air ball, which is uh, pretty surprising. Air ball is in our dictionaries. Uh, here's a more recently used word that just entered our dictionaries, microaggression. I'm kind of surprised that that landed on our dictionaries so quickly, actually. I don't think that word has been used that often. But this word means uh, it's a comment that subtly expresses a prejudice toward a member of a marginalized group. So. Uh, our culture often warns us about microaggression. But, but here is the next word that I want to tell you is the word of the year, uh, at least according to the Oxford Dictionary. The, the word of the year, a new word added to the dictionary last year, 2016, post-truth. Post-truth. And this is defined as denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinions than appeal to emotion and personal belief. We're hearing a lot about this world. We're hearing phrases like post-truth politics. Uh, As you've been following elections and and the the political situation with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and things that they've said and whether they're true or not, and and what people are saying is we've kind of gotten past the place where people are really concerned about what is actually true saw one periodical that said that we have entered a post-truth world and there's no turning back. So the idea here is not that truth doesn't exist, if we read the definition carefully. Uh, The definition is telling us that truth just simply doesn't have the relevant place that it used to. It's not as influential as it used to, because what is more influential is our emotions and personal belief. And the suggestion is that what's more important than truth is just simply how we feel about the truth. The importance is not really what is actually or objectively true, but our opinions about the way we think, the way we think things ought to be. That's the world in which we live. That's the perception that many people have of truth. Now, for Christians, 
this presents a challenge, doesn't it? Because we are people who highly value the truth. Our faith is based in the truth. We believe that there is such thing as an objective truth out there that can be known, a truth that exists independent of our opinions of it or our interpretation of it. Truth is not changed or moved by what we want it to be. It exists completely independent of that. And the Bible talks many times in, um, with, with some concern about what will happen when truth is diminished or undermined. So here's Isaiah 59, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Isaiah's description of, uh, of um, a difficult situation in ancient Israel's history where truth was undermined. Here's Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How can the righteous live and function as God's people in a society where the foundations of truth are being undermined? Well, today, well, last week, actually, we began a sermon series here at New Life called How to Make Sense of Life. And we are exploring various different questions that people commonly ask in their lives. I don't mean questions that people necessarily pose to Christianity, like, uh, you know, how do you know the Bible is reliable, or why do you say Jesus is the only way? That's not the kind of question I'm talking about. I'm talking about questions that everybody in whatever culture and whatever time period find themselves asking at some point. It's like last week, we explored the question, is there meaning to life? I mean, there's not too many people who at some point haven't asked that question. And today the question is um, concerned with this idea of truth, making sense of truth. Does truth exist? Can I know truth? Is it real? Is it objective? Or is truth really just something that I can make up as I go along? Is truth my own personal subjective truth, or is it something out there that I'm accountable to? And that's what John chapter 18 is going to address. So if you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. John 18, verses 33. We're going to read down to verse 40, actually. The bulletin says 38. <clears throat> this is a conversation that Jesus is having with Pontius Pilate. Jesus has been arrested um, this is um, getting close to the time that Jesus goes to the cross, and Jesus has been uh, subjected to a number of different interrogations, and now uh, he enters into Pilate's headquarters, and there's this private conversation between Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate 
said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Lord, would you send your spirit to open our eyes, soften our hearts, enable us to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, the first thing I want to show you from this passage is, is something that, that might surprise you a little bit, but it's something that I think we need to consider, particularly because it is related to this movement or this change in our world uh, regarding truth. And the first thing I want to show you is this, that there is a view of the truth that is too strong. I mean, it, there, there is a possibility of clinging to at least your perception and your understanding of truth too strongly. And when I mean, when I say too strong, what I mean is, is clinging to the truth in such a way that it causes you to be harsh and abusive and oppressive. And this kind of attitude toward the truth is what has created a suspicion in our culture toward those who claim that they believe in the truth. Because they've just seen so many people clinging to truth and allowing it to lead them to a self-righteous, angry, condescending, abusive kind of attitude. And actually, we see that taking place in this passage. So let me give you a little bit of background here. <clears throat> um, uh, we've got you know, different groups of people here. The Jews are living here in Jerusalem, but at this time they're living under the authority of the Roman Empire. And yet the Jews had their own court system, even under the authority of the empire. And so in the verses leading up to the passage I just read to you, you'll see Jesus coming before the high priest Annas, coming before the high priest Caiaphas. And after Caiaphas interrogated, questioned Jesus, he then moved Jesus on to the next stage, which was to go to a Roman court. And that's who Pontius Pilate represents. He's a governor uh, of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is sent to him by the Jewish lower court. Now, one of the reasons why the Jewish authorities are doing this is because they have a special interest in making sure that Jesus is executed. That's their desire. But they can't do that. They don't have the authority to do that. They have to appeal to a higher authority, to the Romans, to do that. And so that's why Jesus is brought here before Pontius Pilate. And so we see, starting here in verse 33, um, how this unfolds. Pilate enters the headquarters again, and he calls Jesus and says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now that's very important to Pilate. He wants to know if Jesus thinks he's a king or not, because what the Jews want is for uh, the Romans to perceive Jesus as a king who is presenting himself as a threat to Caesar, the Roman emperor. 
And so in the Jews' mind, if they can get the Romans to see Jesus as a threat, they'll be more likely to execute him. And so that's why Pilate asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? And so in verse 34, Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? So here Jesus wants to know, are you saying this on your own, Pilate, because you have personal interest in this, because you're interested in me, because you want to know who I am? In that case, my answer would be, yes, I am king of the Jews. But if others said this to you about me, if others have just said, hey, this is a guy who thinks he's a king and you better take care of him, well, in that sense, no, I'm not the king in the sense that I'm trying to dethrone Caesar. And so Jesus wants to know, what does Pilate mean by this question? And that's why he asked that. So in verse 34, Pilate answers rather sarcastically, am I a Jew? You know, there's, well, what do I care about this? I, I'm not one of you. But, but here's where we see Pilate give us something I think is very instructive for this point. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. Your own nation, this, this nation of Jews, this nation of Israel, this nation that claims to worship the one true God, this nation that has an a, a powerful, passionate interest in truth, and not just this nation, but the chief priests, the religious leaders of this nation. These are people, again, who have an even greater interest in the truth. And what have they done? They have delivered up Jesus to Pilate in hopes that Jesus will be executed. These are religious people these are people who love the truth. These are people who want to do the right thing in obedience to God. And they're seeking to deliver Jesus up to be killed. I don't know what that noise was. No, I've never heard it in all the years that I've been here at New Life. <laughs> but it's gone away, so we're okay. Do you see what's happening here? Religious people, chief priests, religious leaders so committed to their version of the truth that they're blind to the truth. They're so committed to their truth that it's leading them to do something very, very dangerous. It's leading them to justify in their own mind that it would be right to kill this man, Jesus Christ. And what's so ironic in this situation is here you have people committed to the truth, and in their commitment to the truth, they want to kill the truth. Seems completely backwards doesn't it? And yet that's what we see happening here, that there is a view of the truth that is too strong. There's a view of the truth that blinds us to what is actually true. There is a view to a, of a preferred truth that keeps us from seeing the real truth. Bible acknowledges this in many other places. Here's John 16, Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, here's what's going to happen, disciples. They're going to put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. People are going to execute you and think they're obeying God. They're, they're going to think they're in line with the truth. They're going to think they're doing something virtuous and commendable. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 9 where James and John and Jesus, I guess I think it's all the disciples, they go into a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village resist them and won't welcome them. And then James and John say, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down thunder on them? You want us to wipe them out? Shouldn't we kill them all? 
James and John, in their pursuit of truth and their, their, their cherishing of the truth, are led to this inclination of wanting to kill people who don't accept it. And of course, Jesus responds and rebukes them. Romans 10, verse 2, here's Paul, I bear them witness, talking about the Jews. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's a, a zeal for God. We could substitute truth there. They have a zeal for what is true, but they're mistaken. And in their zeal, apart from knowledge, it leads them to do some horrible, awful things. And we, we can just see that in the world. You can see it happening, right? I mean, it wasn't that what 9-11 was about. You have these Islamic men committed to their version of the truth, thinking they're doing the right thing, and what do they do? They get in planes and drive them into the World Trade Center and kill 3,000 plus people in their pursuit of the truth. And it's not just Muslims. I mean, this has happened in the church, hasn't it, throughout history. I mean, we could tell countless stories of this kind of thing happening. I'll just share it with you one. I'm reading this book on the Reformation by a guy named Carlos Iyer, a really instructive, wonderful, helpful, well-written book. <clears throat> and uh, he tells the story of, of this guy, Girolama Savonarola. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that right, but um, an Italian preacher. Uh, this is before the Reformation. Uh, just on the cusp of uh, Martin Luther's coming on the scene, and uh, Savonarola um, <clears throat> was a, a very gifted preacher, very powerful preacher, and he was bothered by the corruption that he saw in the church at the time, and so he preached against it. He called out the priest. He called out the church on their immorality and their sin and their various forms of corruption. And how did the church respond to that? The church representing the truth, and in the interest of upholding the truth, arrested that man, tortured him, required him to claim to have been a false prophet, executed him, burned his body in a fire, and took his ashes and poured them in the water in their pursuit of the truth. Now, the reason I'm telling you these things, friends, is because in this post-truth culture that we live in, when we're talking to people out in the world, people who are not Christians, people who are very secular and unchurched, when they hear you talk about the truth, for a lot of those people, this is the kind of thing that comes to mind. People flying airplanes into buildings. People taking people and burning them at the stake. A lot of people in this day and age, they see any kind of allegiance to truth as something that is dangerous. And at the very least, we have to acknowledge it's happened. It's true. There have been people who have been blinded in their commitment to the truth and have done awful things in the name of truth. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, I mean, we just have to be careful. I mean, it can happen to us too. Um, we can get blinded also. In particular, friends, if if we are more committed to something else other than the Scriptures to understand what truth is, if we're committed to our reputations more than the Bible, if we're committed to our politics more than the Bible, if we're committed to our denomination more than the Bible, if we're committed to our nation, the United States of America, more than the Bible, it can lead 
to the abuse of the truth and to oppression. And we might not even realize it. That's why it's so important, friends, for us to be subjected constantly to the teaching of the Scriptures so that our commitment to the truth doesn't turn into a distortion of it. So, that's one thing we see here. The Jews are blinded to the truth, and what they want is Jesus to be killed. But there is also a view of the truth that's too weak. And that's very clear in this passage as well. And we see this in particular in the attitude of Pontius Pilate. So if you look down to verse 37, Jesus says in Pilate's presence that he's come to witness to the truth. And then we get this famous response in verse 38 where Pilate responds and says, what is truth? Now, man, if you've ever wondered if the Bible is relevant to a contemporary audience, this verse ought to answer that question. I mean, this is the question that our society, our culture in the Bible, asked by Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago, what is truth? Now, what is Pilate asking here? Do you think it might be a sincere question? I I think it's a legitimate consideration here. Is, Is Pilate saying, Jesus, I'm really interested in the truth. Can you please explain it to me? Is that what Pilate is asking here? I think the answer to that is no, um, for two reasons. One, we've seen Pilate's attitude. He just kind of has this flippant, sarcastic, snarky attitude all the time, and it just seems that this question has that same kind of underlying tone. But I think the biggest reason that we can know that Pilate is not asking this question sincerely is because Jesus doesn't answer it. If Jesus thought, this guy is really wanting to know something, I think he would have answered it, but, but he didn't. So I don't think this is a sincere question. It's not an inquiry for information. Instead, it is a, it is a statement that is masked as a question. And what Pilate is really saying is, who can know the truth? The truth can't be known. And maybe even a little harder, truth doesn't exist. In fact, if he lived today, Pilate might have said to Jesus, don't you know we're living in a post-truth world, Jesus? That, that's kind of the, the thrust of what Pilate is saying. Now, here's why I say this view of the truth is weak, because notice what this leads Pilate to do. His weak view of the truth is explained to us in verses 38 to 40. Here's, here's what this leads him to do. Notice what what happens? After Pilate asks this question, what is the truth? He goes back outside to the Jews. So he leaves Jesus back in the headquarters, goes back out and speaks to the crowd and says at the end of verse 38, I find no guilt in him. But then he goes on and he says, but but you have this custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So there's this option that he's given the people. They can have Jesus executed, or they can have another man executed. And so in verse 40, we find out their answer. They cried out again, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So here you've got Pilate in his weak view of the truth. He doesn't know if truth exists. He has no moral foundation. He's cynical about the truth. Anything goes, apparently, in his mind. And here's how he responds to this situation. He takes a man in whom he finds no guilt. Verse 38, I find no guilt in this man. He's an innocent man. He's innocent of his charges. 
And then he looks at Barabbas, a man who is a convicted robber. And Pilate's decision is to condemn the innocent and free the guilty. Condemn Jesus, the man in whom there is no guilt, and let this robber go free. That's what happens, friends, when we begin to be set adrift from the truth. When we don't have confidence in the truth. When we don't think truth exists. When that begins to seep into a society, it does does just about anything goes. And do we have any doubt whatsoever that that's what's happening in our society today? After decades and decades of questioning the truth and asking this same question that Pilate is asking, what is truth? How do we know there's truth? There is no absolute truth. And now we have boys calling themselves girls and girls calling themselves boys. That's what happens when you lose the truth. Here's what G.K. Chesterton said. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing anything. That's the problem. People are now open to believe. People have a, 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 a natural tendency to want to believe in moral truths. It's not that they don't believe in anything. It's now that they can become open to any kind of strange and aberrant teaching. Now, some people would respond to this and say, wait a minute, are you saying that if a person doesn't believe in God, that means they're wicked, immoral, nasty people? No. No. I'm not saying, I don't think Chesterton was saying that, for instance, an atheist can't be a moral person. Atheists can be moral people. Atheists can live upright righteous lives. Atheists sometimes live lives more virtuous than Christians, quite frankly. That's not what this is saying. That's not what I'm saying. Atheists can be moral people, but the question is this. What is the foundation of their morality? For an atheist, where, what's the source of truth? How do they know what's right and wrong? That, that's where it gets slippery for them. And maybe we have atheists here in the room today, and I don't mean any disrespect. I would love to have a conversation with you afterward, and if whatever I say here misrepresents you, I would love, I would love to know that. <coughs> but as I understand it, there's just no way to really give a rational explanation for how there can be right and wrong. But, but there are a couple ways that this is attempted. So one is, is, is Darwinism, very um, commonly held view today that says, Here's how we can explain the existence of moral truth apart from God. They say morality serves an evolutionary purpose. That morality, having a sense of right and wrong, helps the human species to survive. It gives us an advantage over the ages that that helps us perpetuate the species. And that's morality. It doesn't need a, a divine law. It doesn't need any sense of transcendence or God. It just helps us survive. But here's a problem with that, that, that I see. I mean, we look at the animal world, right? I mean, you've seen some of those National Geographic videos, and you see the way animals treat each other. <laughs> I mean, animals are not slow to savagely attack each other and kill each other and eat each other. And that's the way the animal kingdom works. 
And we see that, and we notice it, and we do not hold them morally accountable for that. <laughs> Lions are not evil because they track down a deer and kill it. But when we look at human beings, our view is entirely different, right? We don't expect human beings to act that way. We don't expect human beings to kill each other in order to perpetuate the species. And that's because we know instinctively that human beings are held to a higher standard, that we are accountable to some kind of supreme moral law outside of us, that there's something more going on in the human species than merely perpetuating ourselves. We're different than the animals. We're different. We have dignity. We're made in the image of God. We're set apart. And I just don't see how the Darwinian evolutionary viewpoint can account for that. I, I see that as a problem. I don't think this makes sense of reality, which is what we're trying to do. Make sense of truth. Make sense of the world in which we live. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Here's one other, one other theory, one other way to try to explain how morality can exist apart from the existence of God. And that is to say um, what's called the social contract theory that morality is just what a society agrees that it should be. What's good and bad is just what a society has developed by kind of an unspoken consensus that is best for us as a society. This is what's going to help us get along and be happy. Social contract theory. That's what's good. That's what's moral. Whatever the society agrees to. Here's, here's a problem with that. It gives no... It gives no opportunity for social justice to take place in a society. It, it doesn't give, if, if right and wrong is simply what a society agrees upon, and that society agrees upon something that we know is absolutely wrong, on what basis can we oppose it? For instance, slavery in the United States. There was a time in the United States, particularly in the South, where slavery was considered to be morally okay. That's what that society agreed upon by social contract. So on what basis can we say that was wrong if we say that morality is what a society should agree to? It, it doesn't leave any room for somebody to step up and say, no, what this society agrees is right is actually wrong. Because that's what always happens in social justice situations. Somebody opposes what the society holds to be true. Martin Luther King, for instance. I mean, do you think when Martin Luther King led the civil rights movement in the 60s that he appealed to social contract theory? His argument wouldn't have worked, would it? Because the society agreed that slavery was okay. What Martin Luther King had to do was appeal to the eternal transcendent law of God, and that's exactly what he did. Read his letter from Birmingham jail. He appeals to a divine, absolute truth in order to oppose what he knew to be an evil that his society had agreed to. So, these, these views of truth are too weak. They don't work. There is a view of the truth that is too harsh. There is a view of the truth that is too weak. But there is a view of the truth that strikes a balance in the gospel. In the gospel, we find this wonderful balance in the approach to truth. So what's the answer to Pilate's question? 
What is truth? Jesus has said it. Verse 37. I have come into the world for this purpose, he says. Verse 37. I mean, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Here's the purpose for which I left the throne room of heaven to come into this world, to be incarnated as a man and to live among you. We know that he came for many different things. But here in this passage, he's saying here, here is one of the main purposes I came to testify to the truth, to witness to the truth, to tell you that there is a truth, that truth exists, that it is real, that it can be known, that it can be understood, that it is not elusive, that it's coming for you, it's coming in pursuit of you. I'm coming to tell you. And so Jesus goes on and says, here's how you can know the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you want to know the truth, friends, here's the very easy answer. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those are Jesus' words. He said, if you want to know the truth, listen, hear what I have to say. He also says this, as we look at this whole episode where Jesus is being interrogated by by Pilate, we might think of Jesus as if he's some kind of a victim, as if he's like some kind of an animal trying to run away and escape, and Pilate has caught him, and we see Jesus as this victim of the system. But look what he says here in John chapter 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, not even Pontius Pilate. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What Jesus is saying is that this whole episode with Pilate was planned by the Father, orchestrated by the Father, that Jesus voluntarily went to talk to Pilate, and Jesus went voluntarily to lay down his life. He went voluntarily to shed his blood, not as one who oppresses, but as one who dies for his oppressors. Jesus submitted himself to the hands of his oppressors that he might forgive his oppressors. That's what the truth has done. There is no truth like that. A truth that is strong and absolute, but a truth that comes in mercy and dies for his enemies. Tim Keller says this, Yes, believing in universal truths can be used to oppress others. But what if that absolute truth is a man who died for his enemies, who did not respond to violence with violence, but forgave them? That's the truth that we worship, friends. That, that's the balance we find in the gospel. And the kind of people this produces are people who believe in the truth and hold to it strongly and don't apologize for it. But we're also people who are humble, gracious, kind, servants, peacemakers. People who believe in this gospel become peacemakers. And we see that in verse 37. Um, well, ver verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would have been fighting. Those who believe in me would have been fighting you, but they're not fighting you because they're not of this world. They believe in me. They trust in me. They are from another place. My kingdom is different than this world. 
My kingdom says, yes, there is a truth, and everyone is accountable to it, but it's a truth that makes our hearts soft and humble. So, friends, this is not a post-truth world, friends. The truth is alive and well. The, the truth was once dead, and now he's alive, and you can know him. I, I would say you can know it, the truth. No, as Christians, we say you can know him. You can know the truth by turning from your sin and receiving Jesus as your Savior. You can know this truth by studying the Scriptures, reading the Bible, which is called the Word of Truth. You can know this truth by giving yourself to the church in service, the church called the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And the promise is not just that you will know the truth, but that the truth will set you free. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that you would help us as we respond to your word, God, that we would not use the truth as a weapon, but that the truth of your gospel would humble us, and as we cling strongly to it, Father, that we would be peacemakers in this world. God, help us to do that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.